morning, how are we? Well, uh, this morning we are continuing our little series on the six core values um, of Redeemer Pampa. And usually what we're doing is we're working our way chapter by chapter through a book. And so if you're new to Redeemer this morning, this is just not normal. Um, but we're, you know, every now and then, um, I, and it's probably been a year and a half, two years since we've done this, we will just take some time to remember the things that we believe that the Lord has called Redeemer Pampa to be. And so last week, um, Jeremy walked us through um, the fact that we believe that we should be reflective of our community here in Pampa, and the week before that, he walked us through this idea that our church needs to be gospel-centered. And uh, today, we're going to be talking about church leadership structure. And specifically, the core value here is that Redeemer, Van- Redeemer Pampa is to be plural in leadership. And so I know right away, for some of you, when I merely utter the words church leadership, there are all kinds of memories and emotions that are, you know, that are attached to those memories that probably come boiling up to the surface. And some of those emotions might be strong because you've either had some really, really good experiences or maybe actually some experiences which were not so good. And if you've grown up in church, or maybe you're just a little older and you've been around church for a while, you've collected those experiences and you've got some stories. And unfortunately, some of them are probably negative. And it's for that reason um, that we just need to make sure that we're always going back to the Scriptures to remember what it is that God calls leadership to be as opposed to what man can make leadership into. And so we're going to get into some of the reasons why, uh, you know, some of those things that happen that are unfortunate do happen. Um, But let's just, you know, suffice it to say now that people are really good at messing stuff up. And they can especially mess things up when they're not walking in the Spirit and just clinging tightly to God's Word. So we're actually going to do that this morning. We're going to take everything that we think and, and know about leadership in a church, and we're going to hang it on the Scriptures, and we're going to, as Carmen prayed this morning, we're going to lean into the Spirit and just make sure that our, you know, our experiences, our preconceived notions, that we're just going to hold those at bay, and we're going to see what the Scripture says. And then we're going to talk about how we have attempted to model leadership here at Redeemer Pampa after what, what Scripture tells us. So, um, you know, the other thing is, I think that we just need to be sure that we're trusting the Lord here, that, that He loves us enough to order His church in a way that both honors Him and also um, provides the safest, most joyful, life-giving community possible. And so we believe we can find that truth in the Scriptures, and so um, that's where we're going to be today. Um, so again, the, the core value is actually plural in leadership, and really what we're talking about this morning is this church office of elder. At Redeemer, we believe there should be a group of leaders who lead, as opposed to just the pastor leading out on his own. And the primary reason that we hold this view here at Redeemer is because that's simply the biblical model. Um, It's all over the New Testament. In James, his letter to the early persecuted church in Jerusalem, he said, and this is chapter 514, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. When Paul and Barnabas, who were missionaries, were planting churches, 
on their first missionary journey, we're told in Acts 14, this is verse 23, and when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then in Acts 20, verse 17, this is Paul again, he calls for the elders, plural, of the church in Ephesus, the church that he planted, to meet with him. In 1 Peter 5, 1, Peter says, I exhort the elders, again, plural, among you. So from several original apostles who were the first church planters, and then in a variety of situations and locations, we're seeing this consistent thing that there is a plurality of leadership, a plurality of elders, and they're leading these local churches. So now, we're going to spend the rest of our time working out why we believe a plurality of leading elders is rooted in biblical wisdom. Okay, so um, there are many styles of leadership. Perhaps the most common is to have just one guy at the top of an organizational pyramid, and he's delegated many things, but ultimately he's just kind of sitting there saying the buck stops here. And so I love the idea that, you know, we could maybe have Jeremy sitting at his desk, power triangle, leaning forward, right? And he's saying the buck does, in fact, stop here. I think that's beautiful, okay? Um, that model of leadership actually does have some advantages. It, you know, it can work, and some things can be accomplished in a corporation or a government or in the military. Um, but when you try and apply that to the Lord's church, it does not work. In fact, things break down, and it can become a very toxic situation. So I want to shed some light on why that is. And to do so, let's read from Matthew chapter 20. These are verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And so let me just kind of paint the picture here. The sons of Zebedee are James and John, and they're two of the original 12 disciples. And uh, they have a, a mother who apparently is raising millennials, okay, because she's going to Jesus, and she's saying, my babies deserve the best possible outcome because they're my babies. And, uh, but, but here's, let me, let me keep reading. Um, she's, she kneels before Jesus, and she asks him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I and to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and not my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the other ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The mother of James and John goes to Jesus, and she's imagining that Jesus is about to overthrow Roman rule um, over Israel at that time. And most people in Jerusalem, most Jews fought that. The crowds were rallying behind Jesus because he was feeding thousands, raising the dead, performing miracles, 
And they all were looking forward to this time when Jesus would, would overthrow the Roman authority and Israel could have back its sovereignty. And so she's imagining, here's Jesus at the top of this power structure, and I would like my two boys to be sitting at your right and your left hand. But Jesus shoots that down very, very succinctly and kindly. And he basically says, look, um, that's not how power and leadership is going to work in my kingdom. Leadership actually is service. We're, we're not here to control the masses. We're not here to wield a sword. Instead, we are here to care for, to serve, to love the people of God. So remember that Jesus is actually talking to his disciples. These are the people, these are the men who would be the very first church planners, the very first missionaries. And so, you know, he's always ready to like take a moment and make this a teachable moment. And he does this. He does this preemptively so that whenever they do become leaders, they have this new and fresh view of what leadership actually should be. So as the New Testament continues, if we get glimpses of that happening, these first churches, these first churches that are starting, we see that same heartbeat when the writers of the New Testament are talking to the church leaders. And so here's the book of Acts, chapter 20. Paul, again, a church planner, he calls together all the elders of the Ephesian church that he planted, and he, told, he tells them in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So just a quick side note, overseer and elder, those words are used interchangeably to describe the same church office. Okay? Um, but it's also significant. Did you catch that? He says that the overseers are in the flock. They are not set up over and above the rest of God's people. They're simultaneously an equal part of the body and also responsible for the body's well-being. If we keep reading a little, we get even more of a complete picture of what caring for the church really looks like. Paul says, and this is verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So what Paul is talking about is false teachers. He knows that influential people who misunderstand the gospel, who oppose Jesus, are going to attempt to lead others away from Jesus. So part of the call of an elder is to keep watch. You're supposed to be with and among your people, and you're supposed to know them well enough to know that whenever some, some other influence has occurred, that you're there, you're present, and you can hopefully be a support and a care and just provide oversight and hopefully do some kind, loving, just redirection, admonition to get back to the gospel, back to Scripture. And this is why multiple elders are required, because as the church grows, one pastor cannot effectively do that. It's just practical. If you're going to be available to people, and if you're going to really know them so that you can care for them, and you can have eyes whenever there's influences that are, not, well, that are opposed to Jesus, you need more than one person who is in and among the flock. And so um, it's very easy for one guy just to sit at the top and look down at all the worker bees and give orders. But it is quite another difficult thing for one guy to actually be a faithful shepherd over a large and growing number of God's people. And that's, that's true here at Redeemer Pampa. 
Um, when when Redeemer, Pampa, Redeemer Pampa just started, when it first started, 10 years now, um, it was a living room, and it was a handful of people. And this room today is almost full, and there are many more who were not here this Sunday who were connected and walking um, in our community. And Jeremy cannot know everyone the way that he wants to, longs to, desires to, so that he can effectively pastor and shepherd. And so it's essential that we have other elders who can, can do that alongside him. So, um, collaborative leadership is wise just from the standpoint of, of just shouldering, helping to shoulder burdens. There's another reason. It's wise because it can also protect a pastor from sin. Right now, everyone in this room can name a politician or a CEO, the president of a university, a pastor, or somebody who was the lone head of an organization, and they made a really poor decision, and they completely wrecked their personal and professional life. And we are hearing about this on a weekly basis. It always boils down to some abuse of power, and it usually manifests, manifests itself in some you know, financial transgression or an illicit relationship. But we also know that most of these people did not start out with bad intentions. They wanted good for their families, they wanted good for their organization, and they didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, today is the day. Today, I'm going to completely blow up my family, and I'm going to destroy the organization that I serve my whole life. That doesn't happen. But Proverbs says it like this. I think it describes how this happens. This is chapter 18, verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Bad decision-making is born out of isolation. And this is a warning for all of us. It's a reminder of the importance of living in community. It's letting other people who love Jesus and who know God's Word and who listen to the Spirit, it's letting those people know you. And you give them permission to speak into your life, to see your life, because the truth is, is that each and every one of us can drift toward isolation, either in general or in a specific area of our lives. And here's why. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we want our darker inclinations to remain unchallenged. But if we're living in community and we're living vulnerable, available to others, then those things do not remain unchallenged. They can be challenged despite rubbing shoulders and being with other believers. They can be challenged by a direct conversation. They can be challenged by the Spirit working through the community and by us hearing the Word together. And so we don't want to drift toward isolation. And how much more so um, for a pastor? Um, if you are the kind of person who's at the head of an organization, whether that's a CEO, a pastor, whatever, you've probably done a lot of things well, and you've received a lot of praise from people. And so what, in, what ends up happening incrementally is you start to think, well, I can do no wrong. I've done all these things well. I can do no wrong. No one has anything to say to me because I have come this far. And so then you begin to think, well, I'm entitled to some things. You, you've probably heard the, the phrase, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've, we've seen that in the news. The church of God does not set up her pastor for corruption. 
So look, I have the privilege of knowing several faithful, servant-hearted, shepherding, shepherding, God-honoring pastors. My personal church experience is actually really good on that front. I still have great relationships with wonderful pastors, and Jeremy is absolutely one of those. There's not been one time that I have ever, 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 ever questioned his integrity. And I don't mean to embarrass him at all, um, but we really do have such a gift from the Lord to have Jeremy with such a shepherd's heart leading our body. But what he has in common with all of the other good pastors that we know is that he's made it a priority to surround himself with other men, and, and not just other men, but men who would be willing to look at him and, and say, Jeremy, I, I don't know if that's the best call. Men who are not necessarily what we call yes men, who would say, you know, whatever you say, you're the pastor. And I know probably, in fact, he gets more pushback sometimes than he deserves. And I'm pretty sure that sometimes he lays in bed and he's just wondering, Lord, why did you give me these men? Because um, I cannot get anything done. Um, but it is a healthy and a good thing to have other people speaking into that situation so that a pastor is not subjected to isolation and this downward spiral of, of self-centered decision-making. So there is another side to the same coin. Um, let me read from Proverbs again. This is chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. It says, A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might, for by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. It is not enough just to have one guy with wisdom making decisions. In fact, this verse points out that wisdom, by nature, seeks more wisdom from other sources. That's what wisdom does. It realizes, wisdom realizes, I do not have all the wisdom. I need it from other places. And so the wisdom of a single person will not adequately accomplish big complex things like moving forward God's church. So plurality of leadership, it protects against sin. It's also necessary to enhance decision-making of the lead pastor. Um, let's now, let, let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 5. And it says this, so this is verse 1. I exhort the elders, again plural, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So we've already established um, that the elders of a church are not akin to a board of directors. All right, That's not what they are. Um, they're not removed from the day-to-day -day workings of a company, and then they make decisions purely just out of self-interest. Um, if that wasn't already clear, this passage does a great job of just making that super clear. Okay? But there's something more here. The chief shepherd of any local body is not the pastor. It's Jesus. And until Jesus returns... The elders of a church are called to operate together, not, and it doesn't say not, you know, not however they see fit, okay? It says, as God would have them. And it, what that means is this, you are, as an elder, you are in submission to what the Word of God says. 
You are in submission to the leadership of the Spirit. You are in submission to the chief shepherd. Um, when I, I used to work at the junior high, and I learned something there. I learned that one junior high boy left in a, ro- in a room alone can be trusted for a little bit. Like, you, you know, you could walk away and grab your lunch and come back, and if it was just one junior high boy, it was going to be okay, you know? But as you increase the number of junior high boys in the room, the probability of disaster, catastrophe, really, really bad decisions increases on a curve that is exponential, okay? You cannot leave two junior high boys alone in a room, and you cannot leave five, and if you leave ten, you will get fired, okay? And there's a reason for that, okay? Um, So, you know, here's what I'm saying. A group of elders, even though they are adults, they're perfectly capable of making poor choices if they're not operating under supervision. Okay, so they're not going to burn the place down literally, probably, okay? But metaphorically, that absolutely can happen. A group of elders can burn the place down. And unless they are continually, individually, and as a group submitting to the chief shepherd in prayer, going back to his word, that absolutely can happen. And I would argue that it's likely because we are prone to wander away from his direction and we need to be in constant submission to what the Lord has for every local body. Um, I can't tell you how many times the elders at Redeemer have sat together in a room, and then after praying and after each person kind of saying what they think, the decision was then made. The answer is unclear here. We don't know what to do, so we are going to keep praying, and we are going to wait for an answer from the Lord. And sometimes those, you know, the elders wait longer than, than they feel comfortable waiting. Um, but the Lord has always been faithful from day one. He will always continue to be faithful. And by God's grace, the elders at Redeemer, by His grace, there will continue to be this posture of going back to Jesus, asking Him for wisdom, leaning on the Scriptures, and listening to the Spirit so that we can provide the most possible health and life-giving environment that we can here at Redeemer. Um, so here, here's another reason why multiple elders is essential. Elders can and, ser- can and should serve as a model of what it looks like for Christ to really influence and transform the life of a believer. Elders are not perfect, okay? You know them. But there are some biblical, biblical qualifications that are laid out, and I'd like to read those from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this is verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." So here's the benefit of having multiple men whose lives look like 1 Timothy 3. 
We all need to see godly living fleshed out. We need to know what that looks like. It's not enough just to talk about it from the pulpit. We all need, myself included, we need to see what it really looks like to raise children, to make sound financial decisions, to live on mission, to handle those difficult family situations and career situations. And we need to see what it looks like to handle all all of that in a way that honors the Lord. And there are only only so many hours in a day, and there are only you know there's only so much energy that a pastor has. He can't live in view and alongside everyone in a growing church. But if you have other elders who also have walked with Jesus for some time, and that's all this is. Elders are not special, okay? They've just walked with Jesus for a while, and and it's been long enough that that the Lord has done some things in their life. And so then you can look at that and you can say, hey, look, this is what it looks like for Jesus to have real character transformation and and real positive influence and God-honoring change in a person. But if there are multiple elders who are doing that, now these people who are visible, who are present, Everyone can see what that looks like. And so, you know, there's, a, there's another kind of thing that kind of goes, goes along with this. Um, and again, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably seen this situation. But it's pretty common in churches whenever the, an elder board, excuse me, a group of elders is not set up, that you have, you know, the pastor who's, who kind of does everything, and he's kind of, you know, like the superhero of the church. And so what ends up happening is, is the pastor you know, lives his life in a certain way, and everyone's looking at that, but no one's actually ever trying to attain to that because what they believe is that this is God's guy. His life has to look that way. He's, you know, he's got to make these decisions. He's got to talk this way, live this way, because he's special, because that's what a pastor is. But if there are multiple elders who are doing that same thing, and they happen to have jobs that are more like what your jobs look like, then what happens is now godly living, the influence of Jesus, now becomes normative in a body. It's not something reserved just for the pastor. It's for guys who have lives that look a lot more like mine and yours. Okay, so for all of these reasons, we believe leadership of a local church body should be plural. Okay, it's a biblical example. Real care and loving oversight, it's just too much for one person to shoulder. It's a safeguard against sin. A group of elders have this this benefit of reminding one another to submit to the chief shepherd. And together, the elders can serve as a model for what it means to walk with Jesus. So, obviously, we believe this is super important. Okay, It's one of our six core values. And I don't think it's difficult to see why it would be one of the six. If you've grown up in a church, or, uh, or even if you haven't, if, if you've ever had a job or a family or lived in a country or breathed, right, um, you know the importance of good leadership. Um, and, and I think this really helps us to understand why um, we encapsulate this as one of our six core values. This is Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. The New Living Translation says it this way, when the godly are in, in authority, the people rejoice. 
Notice this idea of growing, increasing leadership. And also notice what's at stake. It's joy or misery for a lot of people. And if you've been hurt, you know the misery, okay? If you've been hurt by poor leadership, you've experienced that. If you've walked in healthy churches, then you know the joy. And so obviously, we want option two. We want joy, right? We want joy. So um, let me say it this way. Um, We cannot afford to get leadership wrong. We can't. There's just too much at stake. Um, I'd like to read for us from Mark chapter 4, verse 30. And and this is a parable that Jesus gives us, and it's an imagery of what the church is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to accomplish. And um, pick it up in verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in the Gospels, he's talking about the community of believers. He's talking about people who submit to him, who walk with him, who obey him, um, who enjoy him. And notice how this kingdom starts. The kingdom begins with a single seed. And by the way, I think it's interesting um, that it's sown on the ground. Jesus was buried in a tomb. Um, And so that's, that's how it started. It started with the death and resurrection of Jesus for his people. He suffered the wrath of God that we deserve because we're sinners. Um, We don't meet his standards. In fact, if we're honest, we probably don't even meet our own standards. And so we can't have any confidence before a holy God. We have no expectation of that. And, and I think that if he were standing here in bodily form, he would have some things to say about some of our past actions, about some of our current actions, um, some of the things that we've said or some of the things that we've thought. And um, look, If you don't trust Jesus this morning, I I would just like to share with you that it doesn't matter that maybe you've also done some good things in your life. Um, We can't do good to cover up the bad. And I think that we operate that way sometimes, even if we don't think that way. Um, I I think that we'll make a bad choice and then we'll try to make up with it by being really good. Um, But the Scripture says, uh, this is Isaiah 64, 6, and this is God talking to Israel excuse me, it's Israel talking back toward God. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven and on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so covering up our sin with good deeds, with charitable acts, with church attendance, it doesn't work. And the reason why is because at the end of the day, our basic posture toward God is that we don't want Him, that we don't want Him to have any say in in our lives, that we don't want to submit to Him. But as the creator of the universe, God deserves a say, and He deserves to have us obey Him. 
And so all of our good deeds really are just, you know, like Scripture says, they're just filthy rags because really we don't want them. Um, but there was someone who didn't have to cover up their good, their, their good deeds, excuse me, their bad deeds with good deeds. He didn't have to do that, and that was Jesus. Jesus lived this absolutely, perfectly submissive life. And he did not need to ask God for forgiveness. He did not need to try and cover up sin because he didn't have any. Okay? And so here's, here's the gospel. All right? The gospel is this, is that we have offended God. We are his enemies because we don't want to submit to him. And yet Jesus did that perfectly. He submitted to God perfectly, and he died on our behalf. God loved us. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us so much that his son paid the penalty, died the death that we deserve, and his perfect life was credited to our account. And so um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can I read that again? For our sake, he made him who knew he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God. God poured out the wrath and justice that we deserve on his perfect son. And that's incredibly unfair, but that's what he did because he loves us. So now, remember the mustard seed, all right? The church begins with that, with the gospel. The church begins with the death, resurrection of Jesus. And as we come together, and here we are, we have trusted the Lord that that is true. We begin to live together less and less for ourselves. We live more and more for God because we, that, that truth that Jesus died for us overflows and to transform lives and into lives that we live that are less selfish and more about others. And here's what happens. The, the branches grow, okay? They grow in number and they get stronger and now we provide a place for people in our community to come and rest. Look, people are exhausted from trying to prove themselves to God. People are exhausted from navigating life without any real compass. People are overwhelmed with the consequences of their sin and the brokenness of the world around them. And when the church is functioning properly, we get to be the resting place for all of those people. In fact, we were the birds at one point, right? Each one of us needed a resting place. We needed to hear the good news that Jesus died for us, that we were not condemned. We needed community and support and care and consistent, unfailing love. We found that in Jesus, and then we see it modeled in the people that are in this room. We needed that. And so when the church is functioning properly, now we become that. The branches go strong, they grow in number, and now we can support more and more who need that same thing. As that's happening, we are constantly reminding ourselves of the seed. So, the local church, when it's functioning properly, very simply put, it points the world to Jesus. It gives them a resting place. God has designed that church in such a way that local leadership is required for that to happen. We believe at Redeemer that the Bible has described that leadership structure as a group of men who are clinging to God's wisdom that's found in God's Word 
that we are listening to the Spirit, reminding one another to submit to the chief shepherd. We desperately need godly example and care and oversight to fulfill our mission. That's how plurality of eldership points us to Jesus. Because if the eldership is functioning properly, if leadership is functioning properly, the church is not hindered in how it grows. It's not held back. It's bolstered. It's cared for. It's supported. Jesus is honored and glorified, and the elders quietly work and serve behind the scenes while the church does its job of being a place for the community. Um, we're going to take a moment and, and we're going to pray. Uh, we're going to wrap things up. Um, and, and we're going to pray for the elders at Redeemer that are current and the ones that are future. And uh, I just want you to know that if you have any questions about eldership, about plurality of eldership, or any other of our gospel, or excuse me, of our core values, would you please feel free to ask? Um, we want to be an open book to you. We are. There's not a single thing that we would not discuss with you at any, any given time. So, um, let's pray, and, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Lord Jesus, we recognize that everything that is good that has happened in the life of Redeemer Pampa is a gift from you. That if it were just men with ideas and women with, with ideas who were just trying to, to do church, that it wouldn't be honoring to you and that it wouldn't go the direction that it needed to go to, to glorify you and to actually serve our community. Lord, by your grace, you've allowed us to glean wisdom from your word. By your grace, your spirit has been present because you love us, because you love your name. And you are the one who has moved things forward in a way that has been really, really life-giving the people. And so we ask for that continued blessing. We don't deserve it. At times we would have messed it up if not for your grace. We pray for the, the elders of Redeemer, Redeemer Pampa and we ask that you would continue to give them a spirit of submission to the chief shepherd. That we would continue to look to Jesus for direction. That we would continue to rely upon his word that we might know what obedience even looks like. Lord, only you can do that. We cannot, and so we cling to you. We pray for the, the, the elders that, that will come in the future. We ask that you would begin to give them a desire and a heart for that role, that you would prepare them in matters of character, in matters of uh, discipline, that they would be ready to help shoulder that burden and quietly lovingly serve and care for your people. All of this we pray in your name for your glory. Amen.